Good morning and welcome to Circle. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for making it here through the polar vortex. It's good to see you somewhat warm here. Uh, we are in the midst of a series that we just started last week called Plugged In, and we've just been looking at prayer. And what is prayer about? What do we do when we pray? How do we pray? What are the inner dialogues that we have in our lives? And how does that connect and plug into the source of life? So if you're new with us today, if you haven't been here before, we, we do post our messages online at cdac.ca slash messages. You can go there and subscribe to them with your favorite podcast. And that way you can catch up with us with everything that's going on and what we're talking about. So if things are resonating with you today, if you're connecting with what we're sharing, uh, please connect with us that way as well. So we do have uh, another way to connect, and we do that through our programs. Our message notes are on there. But there's also an electronic way called Uversion Bible, which is a free app. And if you go to events or more and events, we pop up, and there's all our notes on there. So you can do that electronically as well. Okay, that's a lot of info about how to connect with us, how to plug in. So we'll kind of get into the message series. So thank you, ladies, for sharing about your experience about talking about Pastor Wayne and how funny he is. It's one of the things, actually, that he mentioned to me. He said, whenever you start a series or whenever you're starting a message, you should have something funny to say. I said, well, I'm not that funny. He said, well, find some people in your life that are funny. I said, well, I think John, I see, you guys saw John sing. He was on stage here. He's kind of a funny guy. I'm not sure where he went, if he's still here. He, he'll be around. But he said, you ask John. He has some good jokes. So I asked John to tell me some jokes before I can start my message. And this is a joke that John told me. I said, I'm not sure if this is funny. He said, it'll be, it'll be great, Paul. Share it. So he said, what do you call it? What happened to a guy who lost the left side of his body? He's all right now. Okay, it got some, it got some laughter. Okay, John was right. All right. Thank you, John, for that joke. All right. So my favorite part about speaking is I get to actually read a whole bunch of stuff and prepare a message and think about it and pray about it and read more about it before I write it. And so that's kind of my favorite part of it. You get to hear my messy thoughts about the things that I'm reading about. But everything about prayer that I've been reading about seems to talk about this inner longing that we have to have this inner dialogue and to understand justice in this world, to understand peace in this world, to understand why we seek love and hope and connection in our world. And it seems to me that something in us has been designed to long and look for that. And sometimes I feel... Um, almost astonished at how many people are actually interested in spiritual things. I probably shouldn't be astonished as a pastor, but it's interesting how many people actually, when asked, are searching for something spiritual, to make sense of something that is not just material or practical. And it's easy in our day and age to just focus on the practical, right? Like, how do I keep warm? How do I provide for my family? How do I take care of the everyday things? But something in us longs to ask questions about spirituality, about something that we can't see or can't explain. And last week I shared the Newsweek poll that asked people, do you experience a need in your life for spiritual growth? And 8 out of 10 people said yes. And even though the question was vague, people sensed in them, 8 out of 10 at least, that there was something in them that longed for having a spiritual connection. And if we're honest about things, I think difficult experiences or really great experiences make us aware of our spiritual hunger. Maybe an ominous medical test, maybe grieving from a divorce or brokenness, or maybe seeing your children make poor choices, or maybe birth of a child seem to make our souls pour out 
to someone beyond ourselves, to make sense of life and why things are happening. But even though we have these inclinations to pray, even though we have these inclinations for a cry of our heart, many of us are still searching for the questions of how and to who. Or if we do have some background in prayer, we still, we still sense that we're missing something. Is God really approachable? Does God care enough to listen when we speak? What do I say when I pray? I used to feel closer to God. Can I get that feeling back? Will God actually respond to my prayers when I ask him? And in this series, we want to unpack and understand who do we plug into? Who do we call out to in all these moments? Where is God? And I'm hoping that through this series of plugging into the source of life, we can kind of get a sense of who we are and more importantly, who God is. And does he hear us? A famous author, theologian, pastor, and speaker, Henry Noun, some of you may have heard of him, said it this way. I know that the fact that I'm always searching for God, always struggling to discover the fullness of love, yearning for complete truth, tells me that I have already been given a taste of God, a taste of love, and a taste of truth. Last week, what I spoke about really hangs on this quote. The fact that something in us calls to have an inner dialogue with someone, to have our deep desire to be heard, to be known, to be understood, suggests to us what Noun is talking about, that we have tasted something in us has been designed for God, that we've tasted something, and because of that, we continue our search. In fact, prayer is the most natural response we have to any situation, to the bad ones that I listed or to the good ones. Things like, I wish, and you can fill in the blank, whatever the wish is for you, I wish I won the lottery, or I wish it would get warmer, or I wish I get that job that I really wanted, or I wish I passed that class that I never studied for at all. These are all prayers that we have. And Philip Brooks puts it this way, a prayer in its simplest definition is merely a wish turned Godward. So with all of this in mind, I think there's still something inside of us that says, but how do I take these wishes? How do I take all of these cravings, this, this inner dialogue that I have, and turn them Godward? How do I actually pray? What do I do with this? How do I act with this part of me that's been shaped to pray? What is prayer? How do we structure it? All these questions I think a lot of us wrestle with. And I think if anyone knew how to pray effectively, it was Jesus. In God's story that we call the Bible, we come to know Jesus as God. And he comes into this world to not only fully understand the human condition, but to fully restore it, to rescue it, to embrace on himself the weight of pain and brokenness that we may feel and experience. And Jesus had many followers. Lots of different people came to hear him speak. Lots of people came to hear what he would say, and they were very diverse and different. But he really focused a lot of his energy on his 12 disciples. And disciples, just a student, somebody you're mentoring, you're coaching. And this part wasn't actually unusual because a lot of rabbis, a lot of teachers of the law, religious teachers of that time would have had students. And they would handpick them, and they would select the best of the best, the brightest, to be the people they would, it would share their knowledge with. And what was unique about Jesus is he did take the people of his culture, but he took these really unexpected students. 
people that would not normally be taken. In fact, a lot of the rabbis would have people come to be their students and they would quiz them about things and a lot of the young Jewish men would have to have a lot of the Torah, which is the first part of the Bible that we call the Old Testament. They would have to have it memorized and they had to recite verses and they had to explain all these things, how, how much they understand. And even then the, the rabbis would say, you know what, this is not for you. Go back to your father's house and take on the trade that, you do, that your dad does. So if they were fishermen, you go back to be a fisherman. If they were a carpenter, you go back to become a carpenter. But Jesus seemed to have selected these people that maybe have been rejected by others. And he poured his time and energy into them. But despite them being unexpected or unique, they still had the whole breadth of history and culture. They understood what it looked like to pray in the temple. They grew up as good Jewish young men, so they knew their, their scripture and they knew their prayers. But their time with Jesus was so unique that they saw Jesus teach their own history in such a way that was transforming and fulfilling and changing and turning people's heads that these disciples were rattled by what Jesus was teaching. In fact, anybody they came in contact to what Jesus taught, it rattled them to the core. Not because it was just a morality or an ethic that he was teaching. It was certainly those things. But there was something more with authority that he taught that completely shook people. And so one day Jesus is praying and his students are watching him pray. And when he finishes, one of the disciples walks over to him and says, would you teach us to pray? And it's a weird request because as I said, they would have known how to pray. They would have known what to do when they go to the temple. They would have known what to do with the priests. They kind of had a tradition of things that they knew how to do. And yet Jesus was so unique and so different that after seeing him pray, the disciples said, would you teach us to pray like that? Could you explain to us how that works? Something in Jesus' prayer motivated them to pray or to learn how to pray. So in Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament, which is the second part of the Bible, and uh, Matthew was one of these guys who was actually with Jesus. He's an eyewitness. He was one of the apostles. He saw the work of Jesus. He was there when Jesus taught, when Jesus performed miracles. He was one of the guys that was rattled by things that Jesus was teaching. He records this whole story, and it's found in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. And so it comes to this place, and then Jesus begins talking. So if we jump right to verse 5, this is Jesus speaking. He says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, which is kind of like right there kind of weird because we don't have that anymore, right? Good, you laughed. I, didn't, I wasn't sure if you would. All right. So he says, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. So first and foremost, I don't think Jesus is saying you can't pray in public ever. He's after the heart condition here. He calls these guys hypocrites because they want to be seen. They want to be shown how religious, how great, how spiritual they are. So that's what he's calling out. But Jesus also touches something that's very important. And I think it's hard for us to understand it today, and I'll explain why. Jesus says there's a need to be alone, to have a silent time in a relationship with God. That if it is a relationship and it is a two-way conversation, you actually need to have a silent time so you can hear the other person speak back to you. There's a need to turn everything else off in the world. We live in such a loud and noisy world, right? Because you know, even when you're home alone, 
maybe, maybe it's just me, but you can, you can nod your head if it's you. Even when you're home alone, there might be Netflix on. You might be on Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or Twitter or whatever you use. And there's always something scrolling or happening that your mind is busy with. We never take the time to shut all those things off and just to have a moment to listen. We're either in a one-way conversation where we want to share and, tell and talk and say a bunch of things, or we're engaged with a whole bunch of things that wants our attention all at once. And so even when we're mindlessly scrolling, we're not actually giving ourselves time to be alone, to hear, to listen. And Jesus identifies this and says, you need to be alone. You need to have this time in this relationship. It is not a one-way street. You need to have a back and forth. And to have that accomplished, you actually have to go, close the door, and be in silence. God sees you pray in secret. And when you pray in isolation, the unseen, unseen God sees you. Okay, next part. He says, then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Again, Jesus is talking to his culture, and he's talking to his time, and what he's saying is, there's no magic formula to this. And we talked about this last week. There's, we, we address this in the myths of prayer. Sometimes we see the prayer to be like a vending machine. If you just say it enough, enough times, or if you say it the right way, or if you just have the formula perfect, that God will certainly give you an answer as you put those coins into the prayer machine. Except when he doesn't, and the formula breaks down. So Jesus addresses this, and he says it's not about praying hard enough. It's not about forcing God and bending his will. That's not how it works. Aside from that, would you even want a God who you can bend and manipulate? Would you really want a creator, a God that you worship, that you could actually manipulate into your own will? That's not what it's about. Verse 8, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you even ask him. This is a really interesting and weird thing that Jesus says right before he gets to actually teach how to pray. Because he says, God actually knows what you need. You don't need to be loud. You don't need to bend God into your stuff. Your father already knows what you need before you ask him. Well, if God already knows this, why would I even pray? I think what Jesus is getting at here, it's not the matter of informing God or bending his will. It's not convincing him. I think there's something more going on here. And I think that's what confused the disciples, his followers. Because they grew up in a culture and a time where they would have known all the things written in the first parts of their scripture, which talks about blessings and cursings, curses. If you just do this, good things will happen. And if you don't do this, bad things will happen. Except, of course when you're a good person and bad things still happen to you. Or if you're a bad person and you succeed. So Jesus, Jesus is unpacking something deeper for them and says, God already knows what you need. There's actually something more that's happening in your prayer. It's not just about asking. There's something more that's happening to you and to that relationship when you enter prayer. It's not a formula. It's not magic. There's something in you that's changing. And then he jumps into how to pray in verse 9. And he says, this then is how you should pray. And he starts with, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now this is different start to a prayer than uh, God, okay, this is what I want, this is what I need, God, you know what's going on. 
This is the fact that we acknowledge first and foremost in a moment of silence and turning everything else off to say, God, you're so much bigger and greater than I can possibly imagine. If I believe that what is said about you is true, that you're the creator of all things, that you're a sustainer of all this complex universe and world and everything that functions and all the science and biology and everything that makes us us, if you sustain and work in the midst of all of that, there's a greatness to you. And so you have a moment of recognizing how big God is. And yet you have a moment of recognizing that God calls you into a relationship. This great God who's so large and so complex and so sovereign and so amazing is calling you into a relationship with him. So this moment of recognizing who God is is a moment of connection and relationship. God has, makes us for partnership. And what this moment does when we begin prayer is actually redirects us, a moment of realizing before we ask God for anything, redirects us to God, away from our problem. So often we come to God first with our, all our problems and all the things that are on our minds, and we can't help it, right? Because that's all we could see at the moment. And Jesus teaches his disciples and us that that first moment is actually to pull away from the problem to redirect our attention to God who wants to have a relationship with us even though he's so great and large and big. And so the key point here is actually relationship and redirection. God starts with relationship and redirection for our life. Next part, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus addresses this next part by saying, not only do we need to pause, we must acknowledge that in our lives we, will have, a, we have a kingdom. All of us here, whether you believe in God or not, wherever you are in your journey of trying to figure out who you are, who God is, you will have a king who rules your kingdom. You will have something or someone that directs your life. For some it's power, for others it's money, you can fill in the blank what it is for you. All of us have a king that rules our kingdom. And so this template of prayer that Jesus is teaching, it's not a formula, it's a template. What he's addressing here is that we need to understand and surrender our will to the kingdom of God. The kingdom that is coming from heaven to here on earth. And so Jesus models this, Jesus who is God, even though he's praying to the Father, and it's a whole complicated situation with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the three in one. Trust me, I realize how complicated that is, but that is what, who makes one God. And Jesus models this, and he says, not my will, but yours, Father. Not money, not power, not whatever that is that wants to control and rule our kingdom, prestige, your kingdom, God. And here's the thing that we need to understand about kingdom. Here's a little background on the word kingdom itself. There's something interesting that we should know here because I don't know if you're like me, but when you think of the word kingdom, we often think geographical place, you know, united kingdom. We think of a powerful culture or a place that's here on earth that rules with an army and a king. That's what we tend to think of kingdom. 
But in the first part of the Bible in Hebrew and the second part of the Bible in Greek, the word kingdom is actually a verb. It's not a geographical place. It's, it's an action. The better translation would be the reign of God. The way of God. So often we tend to rightly focus on the moral teachings of Jesus that we actually miss the part that he proclaims when he starts his ministry, which is the kingdom of God is here. What he's saying is not a geographical location. What he's saying is the reign of God is here because I'm going to show you how to live. The reign of God begins with Jesus. A reign of God that introduces peace and love for our enemies and care for others and forgiveness and grace. A reign of God that that is so unique and different that it rattled anyone that followed Jesus, so much so that so many wanted to kill him. That's how different his message is. Sometimes we pacify Jesus and kind of think of him as his great teacher, which he was, but it wasn't just that. There was something, about he taught, something that he taught that made people want to kill him. I mean, think about it. How many of us naturally think of loving our enemies? And Jesus says, because every person on earth is made in my image, is bears my image, that means every person on earth is royalty. So the kingdom of God, the reign of God that Jesus is introducing is that we are all royalty. And so when we see an enemy or somebody doing wrong to us, we can't help but forgive them. Because our king has forgiven us. It's a whole unique way of living. And this part of, prayer, this part of the prayer is Jesus addressing this. Saying, your kingdom come, your reign come, your way of living come. And because we are image bearers of God, because we are his partners, because we are royalty with him, the pinnacle of all creation, is that we actually have a partnership to work with God to bring about goodness in the world. This is why when we see injustice, there's something in us that burns. Because we were made for justice. We were made for mercy. We were made for grace. And unless we recognize that in our lives, that we are actually partners with God, we may miss our whole meaning and we may spin our tires. So the key point in this part of the prayer is partnership. Jesus is actually reminding us that we're made for partnership with him to extend the way of Jesus, the reign of God in this world. And the reign of God, not that conquers and destroys, but the reign of God that brings about restoration and dignity and justice to all people. Next part, verse 11. Jesus says, give us today our daily bread. It's a great part of the, of, the, of the prayer. We want provisions. We want to be fed. We want to have things that we need. And so there's all this stuff that Jesus addresses first. The greatness and vastness of God. He calls us out for, to redirect ourselves, to understand who he is, and calls us into partnership. And then he says, I want you to rely on me. And for the Jewish people who would have heard this, like for the disciples and the students who understand their history and their culture and their context, the thing they would have heard here immediately is how their forefathers who left Egypt and wandered in the desert, the whole story of Exodus, second book in the Bible, and God provides bread for them. 
gives them manna. They were starving. They're, they're like, what are we going to do? We have no food here. Maybe we should go back to Egypt. And God provides for them. And so right off the bat, Jesus is reminding his people how God is faithful, how God provides for us even when, we don't have, even when we're in the desert. The trust and the reliance moment of this prayer is a history that God constantly reminds his people that he's a God that cares and wants to provide. So the key point in this part of the prayer is actually reliance. We rely on God because he's faithful, because he provides for us over and over and over. All right, next part, verse 12. That was the key point there is reliance. Next point, uh, verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is the part of the reign of God. When we encounter Jesus, the thing we learn about him is that he doesn't care about our past and our mistakes and our messiness. I shouldn't say it that way. He cares, but he takes it on himself and offers grace and mercy and says, I love you and I see you as my child. I no longer see all that other stuff because you've come to me. You are new. If we are partners with God, how can we see anyone else differently than that? How can we not forgive those that have debts owed to us? How can we not forgive those that have planned bad against us? How can we not see enemies from a different vantage point that, that they are creating God's image? And even though they may be perpetuating evil in the world, we want to offer grace so that they may have a taste of how good God is. And when we don't, when we don't forgive them, what happens? They live in our hearts, in our minds. We grow in hatred and hurt and we fester and we pull away from the way of Jesus. And our hearts can get hard. And so Jesus says this, don't allow your hearts to get hard. Don't allow, don't, don't be different, don't pull away from what I designed you for. Don't destroy yourself and others in this process. Offer forgiveness, even to those who have debts toward you, even to your enemies. Because by doing this, you'll be set free. And that's the key point for this part of the prayer. Forgiving debts to others because God has forgiven our debts sets us free and sets others free. And he says, lead us not into, verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, because we can find it all on our own, but deliver us from evil. Now, some of your translations will have brackets there if you have your Bible, and they'll say, for yours is the kingdom and power and glory forever, amen. Because people have put together Bibles because they are so careful not to misuse or, or misedit or misinform, they found that some of the earliest manuscripts actually don't have that line, so they put it in brackets now to say, Okay, we know in the middle as the Bible is being edited and put together, it's there. But in the earliest manuscripts, it's not there. So we don't want to say something Jesus may not have said. But the verse here, but deliver us from the evil one, ends with evil one. And evil one can actually be translated just evil. Deliver us from evil. Which means when you pray, you're actually not intending to do evil. Which maybe kind of seems like common sense, except that, how many times have we, 
do we know that we may do something wrong, but we preemptively pray about it, knowing that we're still going to do something wrong. And we see it almost like a formula. Like if I just say this, I'm kind of right with God, but then I'll just do this thing that I really want. Maybe I'll pray after it as well. And Jesus says, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from this temptation. Because the gravitational pull in this world is to brokenness. And Jesus says there's a new king. There's a new reign. There's a new way to live that's so different. Prayer is not about forcing something or finding a clause with God to be excused for then then go and continue sinning. It's about wanting to have no part of temptation or evil. It's wanting to be set apart. It's wanting to live in the reign of Jesus. And he's being careful that evil doesn't take advantage of you, doesn't change you, doesn't shape you, doesn't manipulate you. And so Jesus wants in this part of the prayer to focus on the liberation that he offers. And that's the key point here. Jesus offers liberation from evil. And then Jesus kind of just ends with this, verse 14, for, and it kind of reminds us why this prayer, this template is so crucial. Again, it's not that this prayer is a formula for all things, and if you just say this prayer over and over, everything will be great. It's a template that explains what we're addressing in our life. And so Jesus says for, in verse 14, for if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will, forg- will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And I think what he means here is that when you don't join the way of Jesus, when you don't participate in the reign and the kingdom of God, you will have a king who will rule your life. And if it's not Jesus, it may lead you to destruction. And so Jesus reminds them, follow this way, forgive others. You're in partnership with me here. You declare in this prayer how great God is. You surrender your will to God's will. Then you acknowledge your need for God's provision. And it's not about, hi God, just give me this and give me that. It's important to notice the difference here. God knows that you need love and peace and health and healing. But all the things that we think are important often shrink in comparison when we understand how great God is and how great his purpose is for us. And when we partner with him, when we realize the greatness that God is calling us into, this kind of prayer works every single time, and I'll tell you why. Not because it moves God, but because it moves us. This kind of prayer changes us to a people of the kingdom of God. Last week I said prayers become less about asking God for something and more about partnering with him. What prayer does is that it moves us into the work that God is already doing in this world. God is constantly acting and at work. He's not sitting on some cloud or in some mountain waiting for us to say something, to call him to, hey, come help me here. Oh, finally you said, now you better go. The God of the Bible, of the Christian story, is a God who's actively at work in all of us and around all of us, whether we acknowledge it or not. What this prayer does is allows us to have time and space to have eyes to see, ears to hear, and to realize what he's doing around us. And when we see and when we hear, 
It allows us to join him in that action. It allows us to join in creating peace, in creating justice and mercy. One of the famous Christian theologians and fathers of the faith said it this way, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. St. Augustine. You made, your, you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. We are reminded in these prayers and in this time that we come to God is that our meaning and purpose will find its truest peace, truest calling when we begin to align to the goodness of God in this world. When we align to his reign, to his way. When we begin to care for our neighbors, forgive those who maligned us or hurt us. When we say no to temptation that we know will wreck us and worse yet, wreck others. When we begin to be the change in this world that we want to see, we begin to partner with God. And by partnering with God, it changes us to our core and recognizes the living work of God in us and in our world. And Jesus says you're not to do this alone. He walked with his students. He really poured into the 12 disciples. But he said, when I leave, there's going to be a comforter that comes. And I know it's hard to understand, but it's the Spirit of God. And in the Christian story, we call him the Holy Spirit, the set-apart Spirit, the person of God that comes that dwells in us and teaches us and guides us and prays for us when we don't have words. It warms our hearts, but also calls us into justice and even reminds us when we're pulling away from God that you were made for something better, for something greater. It's the inner dialogue, the voice that we hear when we wrestle with things. And it's with the Holy Spirit that we pray. We don't work on this alone. God is with us and in us. And because of that, we as a church want us to understand who the Holy Spirit is. And a part of this prayer series that we're doing of plugging into the source of life, we want us to understand how, this, how the Holy Spirit is in the mix of all this. So we as a church are planning on March 8th to 10th, a Holy Spirit weekend. It'll be an opportunity for any of you to sign up and to come and to hear some teaching on the Holy Spirit, to participate in prayer, to participate in singing and worship, and to try to wrestle what it looks like to connect and plug into the source of life. So that will be happening on March 8th and 10th, and it'll be happening over the weekend here at Circle. So mark that in your calendar. I want to invite you. It'll be a great time to connect and plug in, to partner with God and to what he's calling us. And I want to ask you a question. Are you willing to take the time to trust God, to surrender your will, to surrender your kingdom to the reign of God, who wants to create justice through you and in you, who wants to offer you mercy no matter what you've done, who has suffered on your behalf so that you could have life. This is the Christian story, is that we have a God who is not far removed, but enters our story and says, I will carry your brokenness. And he asks for partnership, which gives us life and purpose and meaning. And so that is the reward that Jesus mentions in that prayer. You will be rewarded. And sometimes we take that verse and we can manipulate it and it may mean, well, if I just pray, then I'll get all the things I want or I'll get whatever. But that's not what the reward is. 
The reward is finding your truest self, which is in God, in Jesus, and finding your purpose and meaning in this world. Not because God can be moved, but because we are moved to his reign and to his way. Would you stand with me? If anything has resonated with you today, if anything that you are wrestling, thinking about, there's going to be a team up front here. I know it takes a little bit of risk to come up and to talk to somebody, but I want to encourage you, if you have questions, to come up and talk to this team. They may want to just listen, they may want to give you some advice, or they may want to pray with you. Take the moment to come up and ask. If you're a guest with us, we have, we have uh, books for you at every entrance as a gift for you. The open ground is going to be open. Let us close in prayer. Jesus, we thank you that you have made us for a partnership. We thank you that you accomplish your will here on earth through us. Help us to align to your will and to your work. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to care for those in our communities, for our neighbors. Help us to understand those who are very different from us. Help us to reach out and to care. Give us strength when we are weak. Give us courage when we are afraid. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray this in your name. Amen. Common ground is open. Go in peace.